Open our Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 1, just finishing up a couple of unsaid things from last week's message. James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 26. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the time that we have together here now. It's already, Lord, been a good day for us to be able to break the bread and, and to sing and, and to just think about this wonderful salvation, Lord God that you have delivered to us by your grace through Jesus, your Son, and the great sacrifice that was made for us. We also know, Lord, that in Christ there are for your children instructions now concerning how we ought to live. We know that you haven't redeemed us by your grace so that now we start to like live to try to earn being saved. We know that we're saved by your grace, and we know that the work is done. But Lord, you did give us instructions in how we ought to live. We know that as we go through life, Lord, you have permitted that we face various trials. And Lord, as we go through those trials, there's all sorts of temptations to, to act this way or act that way. But you've taught us, Lord, that we should ask you for wisdom and believe you for it. And you've taught us how we should act, even continuing to serve you and be fruitful in the midst of the difficulties and the trials, Lord God. And we know that this is all part of it. These things that you had James write down so many years ago, and what a blessing all these years later, removed by language and by culture and by distance and all sorts of things. Here we are still reading and studying your word and being instructed by it. As this passage has told us, let us be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. We pray for your guidance as we study your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we started this passage last week, and we got through, I would say, basically through verse 25. Um, I want to focus our study on verses 26 and 27 today, but... Just to read it, let's go ahead and read the whole passage that starts in verse 21 because those verses obviously set for us an invaluable and essential context. Verse 21 I'll read from, but then we'll focus our study just on the last two verses. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. We speak sometimes of this word religion, uh, usually in a negative sense, and to some extent James does here as well. But then James adds some definition to what real and pure and true religion is that God himself accepts. When we speak commonly of religion and are rightfully skeptical of it, 
what we're speaking of is that external practice of something that would appear to have something to do with God. That is to say, religious obligations, religious efforts, religious shows, opportunities to show ourselves before other people and even before God to be such and such. But that perhaps and imperceptible to anybody around and maybe even to ourselves is completely disconnected from the reality in our hearts. Therein is where we speak of religion with the most critical terms. It's never my intention to stand up in front of a group of people and just kind of slam away at things that I disagree with or, or church expressions or whatever that I disagree with. But I think most of you know that I grew up Roman Catholic. And, and growing up Roman Catholic, I certainly don't have the right to stand here and judge every individual Roman Catholic. But as someone who was raised in that system of religion, I have every right and, and every obligation, in fact, to carefully examine what I know about it and what was taught and comment on it. And while I do personally know individual Roman Catholics who are wonderful individuals, wonderful people, and involved with many good things, and even the institution itself has some things that it does that are very good and useful in the world, the system, the system by which it purports to offer salvation and reconciliation to God, I find to be perhaps one of the best examples of a purely religious expression that can leave someone who thinks they're doing what they need to do to justify themselves before the Lord completely without real faith in their hearts. Do you understand what I mean? Some of you I know have been there. But I know that like, I know from just coming from the family that I do and being around some of the people that I've been around and having some of the friends that I have and knowing some of the people that I know and going through it myself and knowing some of you. I know that what can happen and I do believe often does happen is the system of catechisms and sacraments become a list of religious requirements that are often en masse practiced and fulfilled in checklist fashion, leaving someone who has no real love for God, no real knowledge of the truth, no real faith in Christ, and no real fruit in their own lives to show any of that, thinking they're fine with God because their parents took them to get baptized when they were young, following the traditions. They were inserted into catechism classes and maybe even a Catholic school. And they were taught by religious people this dogma, this practice, this church history, this, you know, all of the things. And they can come out of it. And I'm, I'm speaking this way because I know as someone who went through a lot of these things growing up, that it was not until somebody outside of all of that sat me down with an open Bible and showed me the way of salvation that was presented in the Bible that I actually came to know God. The truth of God's Word and the truth of His Gospel and the truth of salvation is written for us and contained here. And it's not found through a system of our own religious works. Thus, and I could fill the entire time with all of this, and, and you probably could offer some insights as well, and it's not my intention to do all that other than to explain when we stand up here, I say we, when I say, I mean me, when I stand up here and I'm critical of a strictly religious expression before God, this is what I'm talking about. But here comes James, and James also speaks of the hypocrisy of religion. 
but then also turns around and speaks of pure religion, right? And, le and let me remind you, this is all in the context of facing various trials. Even in these verses, that's still the overarching subject of what's going on here, right? What he's, what he's saying is, basically, when you're going through a trial, you call upon the Lord and you ask Him for wisdom, and you trust Him that He will give that wisdom. And make sure you trust Him and you wait on Him. And then He gives various instructions for how we ought to live. Don't lash out in anger. Don't think that the wrath of man produces the righteousness of God. That's not the way it is. What you ought to do is lay aside all of the filthiness, lay aside all of the anger and the rage and the bitterness and receive with meekness the implanted word. That is, the response to your request to God for wisdom. You ask God for wisdom. God's wisdom is all bottled up for us in this nice, neat little package that we call the Bible. And that wisdom can come to you from God through various means. If you've read and studied the Bible through your life as, you're sh as you should, often that wisdom will come because God will give you a thought in your mind and cause you to remember something that you read and you studied in His Word. Sometimes that wisdom will come to you because you'll hear a preacher preaching from the Bible say something that will guide you and help you. Sometimes a brother or sister will speak something to you, remind you of something, quote a verse for you, or speak something that's consistent with a verse for you that makes something click. This is all God. These are all the ways that God uses the truth of His Word to give you that wisdom. And so what we're told is, lay aside all the filthiness of, and wickedness, overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted. Implanted meaning inside you, right? It's not an external act, go and say this many prayers, go and do this many. There's no superstitious external practice of anything associated with it. The way God delivers his wisdom, which is able to save your souls, as it says here, which as I explained last week, is not an evangelistic word as much as it is the deliverance of the soul of the believer who is in trial, right? The way that that comes is God delivers something that is His wisdom from His Word and it is planted deep within us. But if we are filled with wickedness and filled with grudges and filled with bitterness and blinded by a purely external religious expression of what we could purport to be our Christianity, that word's not going to have any effect do you understand? It's, here you go, bottom line. It's spiritual. Didn't Jesus say this to the woman at the well? The time is now coming and now, the time is coming and now is that those who truly worship the Father aren't going to worship on this mountain and they're not going to worship in Jerusalem. They're going to worship in what? In spirit and in truth. Those are the worshipers that God seeks. That's what Jesus says, right? And here's James telling us that as we're walking through trials, it's much the same, right? We're not called to a, a greater religious devotion as much as we are called to wait on God, trust God, cleanse your life of wickedness and things that don't belong here and wait on Him as His Word and as His wisdom comes through the teaching of His Word and the speaking of His Word and the reading of His Word implanted in you giving you strength and giving you guidance. and giving, This is what we need. Our walk with God is a spiritual walk, brothers and sisters. It's why you've got to be in prayer. It's why you've got to be reading the Word. Because you're going to face trials whether you're in prayer or you're in the Word or not. Did you know that? The, the purpose of having a quality, consistent devotional life is not so you can avoid trouble. Trouble is promised to the Christian. The purpose of having a zealous, consistent, fruitful, devotional life with God is so that when the troubles arise, you're ready. You're close with Him. You're filled with the knowledge of Him. And you're ready to deal with it. And isn't that what James is talking about? Is dealing with the various trials that come up in our lives. So you lay aside, you receive that word. And of course, verse 22, we said last week, but be doers of it. Don't 
once that truth is given to you, once that wisdom is given to you that you've asked of God, once you have read and you've seen and you've heard God speak through His Word, once someone has showed you something in the Bible, once someone has shared with you some truth, some wisdom that's consistent with what you know the Bible teaches, don't just take it and dismiss it and continue in your own anger and in your own frustration acting out. Be a doer of what the Word teaches us to do. Because if you think simply receiving wisdom, simply receiving God's Word, simply receiving that implanted Word which is able to save your souls, if you think simply hearing it is somehow beneficial, well, it's only beneficial because it is what you need to go and do what you're supposed to do. But if you're not a doer of that Word, you're actually tricking yourself into thinking that you're okay before God and everything's going to be all right, etc., etc., etc. Right? Thus, thus the exhortation in verse 26 about religion. Right? Because a strictly externally religious experience can leave us in a place where we're constantly starving and we're constantly struggling and we feel like we're never advancing or never growing or never getting anywhere with the Lord. Because we're not worshiping the way and we're not trusting Him the way that He's instructed us to. God's listen, from the moment you got saved, somebody probably told you something that sounds very cliche, but is very true. It's not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you ever heard anybody say that at any point in your Christian life? I've heard it a million times. It's, and, and, and it really is true. You have a relationship with God if you're in Christ. You've been reconciled. He has become your father. He has adopted you as his child. He has made you an heir, a joint heir of his kingdom with Jesus, his son. Whew. He's drawn you into relationship. Says in this very epistle, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And that's how you go through a trial, is walking in a relationship, not with an external form of religion. Thus, verse 26 says, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Do you see what is plainly said in that sentence? Held over here is religion. Held over here is the heart. There's the religion and there's the heart. Right? That's where it starts. If anyone thinks he is religious but doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Now, the proving ground for the heart is profoundly stated in this verse as being the tongue. Elsewhere in Scripture, we are taught, even by Jesus himself, that the tongue is the great revelator of the heart. Right? We're told in Proverbs to guard the heart. Why? With diligence. Why? Because out of it flow the issues of life. We're told in Proverbs. Jesus himself said something to the effect of, out of the heart proceed blasphemies and cursings and and all of these other things. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? And so the picture James is painting is this. If someone has an external form of religion, and he does not define that religion, did you notice that? Now, I think in context, we could probably understand it to be a religious expression that is consistent with the way early New Testament period Jews practiced their Christianity because that was the primary audience that he's writing to. But you certainly need not limit 
it to that. You don't need to be that strict with the context. I think in a more general sense, the truth is, if you are a practitioner of what you believe is religion that in one way or another is honoring to the Lord, like the one that I described for you when I started the sermon, and not just that one, that's just my experience in the life that I had before I knew Christ, but there could be, there could be a myriad of other ones. Listen, we say what we say about religion. You can be very religious in this church. Did you know that? You can slip into being a wonderful religious person in this church, right? Just, you know, just because we don't have a lot of the formalities and the rituals and like the text message said, wow, it's not ritualistic, not stand up, sit down, this, that, that, not all these rules and say this prayer. Say, Listen, you can still be every bit as rotely and empty religious oriented, even in an evangelical church. Because in your heart, in your heart, you're not right. If anyone thinks that he's religious, but he doesn't bridle his tongue, right? But he deceives his own heart. His religion is useless. Useless, right? The tongue reveals where the heart is. And if the tongue is not bridled, what's a bridle? A bridle is a strap that a jockey holds on a horse that's connected to a bit, that's connected to a horse's mouth, and it's used to what? Control the horse, right? Steer the horse. Stop the horse, right? That's the idea of bridling your tongue. Just like you bridle, and listen, a horse might weigh 1,500 to 2,000 pounds, and yet a 150, 200 pound human being can control it with that little bit in the mouth connected to the bridle. When we get into chapter 3 of the book of James, this is all elaborated on, is the tongue and the great fire that a little spark can kindle. So I won't elaborate on all of that too much today. But if we're not able to bridle our tongues, then the stuff that we do, that we say we do for God, is useless. That's the point. We can use our tongues for good. We can use our tongues for evil. But if we are not able to bridle and control our speech, it reveals that the heart is completely deceived. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A life may be filled with good works. A life may be filled with church commitment. A life may be filled with religious devotion. A life may be filled with all sorts of things that look good. It sounds a little bit like 1 Corinthians 13 when the Apostle Paul talks about what love really is, right? If I give everything to the poor, if I give my body to be burned, and you know, this, that, and the other, but I don't have love, it's all useless. It's nothing, right? Well, James is saying something similar here in that he's saying what? Look, if, if you have a religious practice, a religious exercise, a, a practice in life that you believe you're devoting to God for His glory, but you can't control your own tongue, you're deceiving yourself into thinking that everything is okay, when James here actually says what? It's useless. Why? Why? Because words are very powerful things. I want to just show you two passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. One well-known, one maybe not so well-known. Start with the not so well-known one first. Turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Sometime... I don't know if you're a Bible marker or not. You're someone that when you read the Bible, you like draw lines under things and highlights and little notes and all this stuff. But who knows when. Sometime, sometime years ago, I think it's been a little while since I've read through all of these Psalms. But sometime years ago, when I got to these verses, I drew a big bracket around it, made a note in the margin next to it, underlined them and circled a bunch of words. So, so at some point in my life, this really jumped off the page as me. as like, wow, this is really, really important. I don't know. Maybe that was just to get, ready, get me ready to share it with you today. I don't know. But in verse 11 of Psalm 34, it says this. Come, you children, listen to me. 
I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Fair question, right? Here's the answer. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What is that? That's the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. In other words, that's the life that pleases God. Keep your tongue from evil. We can complain with our tongues. We can ridicule with our tongues. We can gossip with our tongues. We can slander with our tongues. We can really hurt people with our words. Spoken to them or spoken about them. We can really cause a world of harm. You can also do a world of good with your words. But they are powerful. And to that end, look at the other verse I want to show you, which is very well known. I could quote it, but there's a part of it that's maybe read less. Turn to Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 21. Proverbs 18.21. Everyone knows the first half of this verse, but, but maybe not as much the second half. The first, it, it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. You've heard that before, right? But the rest of that says, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Right? So the first part of that tells us about the power of words. This verse gets abused by some in certain circles to be part of what they call the word of faith or the, the name it, claim it kind of thing. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So if I just speak riches over my wallet or if I speak health over my body, somehow God is bound to bring that about because death and life are in the power of the tongue. That has nothing to do with what the proverb is about. I think the idea of this proverb is it's showing us that your words spoken to, spoken about, the way that you use words can actually have an effect on yourself or on other people in a way that is death or life to them. You can cause harm that feels like death with your words. You can cause good with what feels like vibrant life with your words. And the second half of that verse, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In other words, the person who talks and talks, and who doesn't talk? We all talk. Someone, some of us talk more than others. Some of us talk too much. Some of us maybe should talk a little bit more. But we're all talkers. We all communicate. And you can kind of throw in there to some extent, I think, in the modern world, what these folks who wrote the Bible centuries ago could not have seen, and that is the, the modern way of communicating through writing and through media and through technology. We're all word people to one degree or another. Well, it says here, those who love it will eat its fruit. The idea of eating the fruit of something means experiencing the results, experiencing the consequences, Right? The person who loves it is the person who loves to talk. Talks to people, maybe talks about people. Not all negative. Some of it's positive. But the idea is you will eat the fruit of it. In other words, be assured of this. Your words cause consequences. And life and death are in the power of your tongue. You understand? Please be careful with your words. Please seek to be Christ-honoring with your words. Please seek to be a promoter of life and love and unity and forgiveness and mercy and grace with your words. What does James say? All of your religious effort, all of your life that you use to try to do things that you think are good and pleasing to God, if you can't bridle your tongue, it's all 
useless. Why? Because the tongue has power over the heart. It reveals the heart and it can steer the hearts of others. And the heart is where God meets us. Spirit and in truth, those are the worshipers that God seeks. That's where God meets us, right? Oh yes, our relationship with Him shows up in how we live. But this is where it is, right? Our spirit, our soul, who we are. What does Jesus mean when He says, He who lives and believes in Me will never die. He who, he who, died, he who believes in Me, though he may die, yet he shall live. He said at Lazarus, raising from the dead. What does he mean? He's describing there the fact that there is a physical aspect of us, but who we really are is who we are on the inside. Yes, your body will grow old and die, but if you're in Christ, who you really are goes on living forever. It's there, the internal man, the implanted word James spoke of, speaking always of the inner man, the inner man, the inner man, the spirit, the soul, the mind, the workings of the inner man. The words, the tongues of people have an effect on that. And that's God's turf. So you be careful about how you use your words. Right? Because your religion is useless. That is to say, the stuff that you do for God is useless. If you can't bridle your tongue. Pray to God that He give you strength and wisdom for bridling your tongue. See, the context, what was the overarching context? Facing various trials. What are we tempted and inclined to do when we're going through hard times? Blah, blah, blah. Careful. Careful. That complaining, that griping, all of that stuff that can come up when we're in the time of trial, it has an effect on the hearts of other people and yourself. Wouldn't it be better to pray to the Lord, cleanse yourself of all the overflow of wickedness and let the implanted word do its work and then you go and be a doer of that. See what James is doing? He's showing us arduously, slowly and detailed, showing us how to really deal with the hardships of life as a Christian. What a powerful chapter this is. Now, so, religion's useless if you can't bridle your tongue. But you know what's beautiful about this is verse 27. Because he shows us what real, pure religion is. Right? So religion, in its most general sense, is not arbitrarily bad. It just needs to be done right. What is pure and undefiled religion? Well, two characteristics are given. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, and I should say a word, I don't want to take too much time with it, but the way that James says before God and the Father is a very interesting affirmation of the Trinity, I believe. Because he speaks of God, but then separates off the Father. And I don't think that's just a waste of words to try to just describe God as the Father, but I think what that shows is what? Is that, is that the Father is God, but God is not just the Father, right? God is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, as the rest of the wealth of Scripture teaches, which for these first century Jews that he's writing to would have been unique revelation, right? Jesus the Son is God. He is the Word which was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So he is begotten of the Father, and yet the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So, so, so you have in the first century this emerging realization that the Messiah is God, and yet distinct from the Father. 
And here comes James saying what? Pure religion before God and the Father is this. So I think it's a bit, I don't, I don't want to take it any further than that this morning, but I think it's a bit of an affirmation of that, isn't it? All right. So pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Two things. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, the first thing you should note is those two things are not presented to us separate from what verse 26 says. They're presented to us, you know, as all together one picture, right? So what he's speaking to in verse 27 are people who bridle their tongues, right? He doesn't turn around and say, all your religion's useless if you can't bridle your tongue, and then tells you to go out and help orphans and widows and keep yourself unspotted from the world with no control over your tongue and say that that's okay, right? It's all one picture. There's three elements here of pure religion. Control your mouth, do good works, as evidenced here by uh, helping orphans and widows in their distress, and holiness, personal holiness. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. With a heart of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been born again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, here is your religious manifesto. You want to practice true Christian religion? You don't need years and years and years and years of catechisms and dogmas and sacraments and everything else. What you need to be is born again by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then here's how you ought to live. Control your tongue, do good works, and be holy. That's it. Let's elaborate on good works for a moment. I listed a whole list that's redundant, sorry, of things where the Bible mentions good works. The phrase itself appears only in the New Testament. The evangelical church correctly is very careful when talking about good works to make sure that we understand that you're not saved by doing good works. But what we have to be careful of in the evangelical church is then being afraid of the concept of good works because almost every mention of good works in the New Testament is an admonishment to Christians to have their lives filled with them. Do you understand? There's a reason why they're called good works. Right? We know that for by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But then, of course, the next phrase is, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, ready? For good works, which He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right? So the idea is, you're not saved by good works. We know that part. But we are saved for good works. We must not forget that part. Thus, James' inclusion in what he describes as pure religion, visiting orphans and widows in their trouble. In first, you don't have to turn to these verses. In 1 Timothy 2.10, women are admonished not to focus on their outward appearance, but to clothe themselves which that, with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with what? Good works. Clothe yourself. Don't, don't. There's nothing wrong with a woman in modesty trying to make herself pretty. It's not the point. The point is, don't, Focus your whole life on your look and how your appearance is. Clothe yourself with good works. That's what's proper for a woman who professes to be godly. 
Same book, chapter 5 and verse 10, speaking of widows who would be taken into the number, meaning the church's ministry of taking care of widows, which the church had, if a woman was going to be taken into that to be supported, she needed to be well reported for good works. Right? The rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6 are told, be rich in good works. In Titus 2.7, young Titus is told for the younger men in the church to show himself a pattern of good works. In Titus 3.8, we are told to maintain good works because they are good and profitable to men. Hebrews chapter 10, in that passage that tells us that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, the verse right before it says, we ought to stir each other up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but encouraging one another, and even so much the more, as you see as day approaching. The purpose for our fellowship, in part, is to stir each other up to good works. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, Peter says that your good works, your doing good, is a testimony to the world around you. In what way? So that when they blaspheme you as evildoers, they will be hushed and they will be forced to glorify God because they see that actually how you live is good. I, that, that's not all of it. I'll stop there. But do you see that the Christian life is one that is supposed to be filled with things like... And good works is an umbrella kind of term. In James, he, I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing a little bit. In James, he speaks of taking care of widows and orphans. And that is maybe one of the high points of doing good works is being charitable and kind to the most vulnerable and the most needful in your society. Christians ought to be in their own lives doing that. But it goes beyond that. In Romans chapter 13, it speaks of being obedient to the governing authorities so that when they see your good works, they'll know the good works meaning your obedience as a civil citizen. When they see that, it will speak well of you. It says in that passage that rulers are given their authority not to be a terror to good works, but to evil works. And what you'll find is, if you live lawfully, which is a form of good works, if you live in your society lawfully, which is a form of good works, you will have the approval of the civil authorities, even if they're not Christian. You'll actually be a good witness and a good testimony to them. That's what we want to be as a church. We want for people in Woodbridge and the surrounding communities to know that these are good, decent citizens that meet and gather here. That's a testimony to them. That's a form of good works. You see? In that same letter to Titus, Paul wrote that God was working on raising up in the church for himself a peculiar people his own special people who are zealous for good works, Titus 2.14 says. It's a major call on the Christian's life. You want to practice pure religion? Fill your life with this. Not at the expense of an unbridled tongue, because then all this is useless. Right? Bridle your tongue, fill your life with good works, and one more thing, Keep yourself unspotted from the world. I'm going to turn to a passage in the Old Testament that I've read to you probably a half dozen times over the years. Anyone know where I'm going? Where am I going? Le Close. I'm going to Leviticus. Where in Leviticus am I going? What'd you say? Very close. 18. Leviticus 18 and verse 1. You'll, you'll, you, at some, you will recall me at some point reading this in the past as soon as I start reading it. Ready? 
So here we are, Leviticus 18.1. What a powerful passage of Scripture this is. All sorts of principled application for our lives and very, very much relevant to what James is saying. James's audience, which were primarily Jews, would know these words well. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. By the way, I am the Lord. I added the by the way. But you see, you see, it's just really like hammering at home, reminding them who it is who's talking to them. I am Yahweh. What's he saying? He had called this generation under Moses out of Egypt. They had learned all kinds of corrupt stuff in Egypt. All kinds of weird practices. All sorts of deviant and abominable things. Read the rest of chapter 18 and chapter 19 if you want a little sampling of what sort of thing they learned when they were in Egypt and what sort of things were practiced commonly in Canaan where they were going. You should. It's quite an eye-opening thing. It's PG-13. I'll warn you that ahead of time. But what what God is saying through Moses is, you don't walk in the way of the Egyptians and you don't walk in the way of the Canaanites. I'm going to show you how to walk. And that's how you walk. James says, pure and undefiled religion. Brottle your tongue. Do good works. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. There's all sorts of possible things you could conjure up that James meant when he used the term unspotted from the world. There was a purity about Jesus himself and the Passover lamb who was unspotted, right? So there, the Savior was unspotted. Sacrifices that they would bring at various times, various kinds of sacrifices had to be unspotted. There were things that they could come in contact with as they lived their daily lives that would make them unclean ceremonially. There were rituals they had to follow in order to make themselves ceremonially unspotted or ceremonially clean. There's all sorts of things that James could be referring to or maybe just thinking of all of it. But that was a a common thought for a Jew was I need to keep myself pure. Well, now here comes James saying to the Jewish Christians... And to all of us, this is part of what pure religion is. Keep yourself unspotted from the world. We are not saved so we can just go on enjoying all the stuff of this world the same way that the world does. We ought to be different. We shouldn't, in our personal lives, we shouldn't be like Egypt and we shouldn't be like Canaan. If you want to think of it, think of it this way. Egypt was the world before I knew Christ. Canaan is the world since I knew Christ. I'm going to walk according to the ways of Christ. And by the way, by the way, it's not a harsh burden. His commands are not burdensome. Right? He's not calling you to a system of religion. Pure religion is in the heart. You have a desire to be obedient and to not just go the way of the world. Sanctify yourself wholly unto the Lord. What is true and pure religion then? How should we endure trials as religious people? Bridle your tongue. Bridle your tongue. Fill your life with good works. That's your God's workmanship. That's what He created you in Christ Jesus for. 
keep yourself unspotted from the world. As Peter put it, quoting from the law, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. None of what I just said brings salvation to you. What I just said is how you ought to live if you have received salvation by His grace through faith in Jesus' as Son. What I have described for you today is not the starting point. What I have described for you today is how you ought to live once you've actually crossed the starting point. The starting point is the cross. Was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree, as our brother pointed out to us? Amazing pity, grace unknown, love beyond degree, immeasurable love. That's the starting point. Come to Christ. Abandon your religious efforts to prove yourself to God. And come to Christ in faith and put your trust in Him. And He'll wash all of your sins away. Justify you before God. Be your advocate before the Father for the rest of your existence. Come to Christ. And then from there, begin to practice pure religion. Not to earn your place before God, but to simply act out what God wishes for you. Bridle your tongue. Fill your life with good works. Be holy. Let's all stand up together and I think we'll just close in prayer at this moment. Let's all stand up together. After we close with a prayer, we will have a very short meeting up here for all of the Vacation Bible School team leaders just to get all on the same page less than a month before Vacation Bible School starts. So it's an important time. We'll touch base up here. There is a prayer time in the prayer room in the back. You're encouraged to participate. Youth group tonight at 6 o'clock. Okay? Brother John, would you close us with a prayer today?